There's a lot of reasons that I like that song. One line in particular um, is that the baby in your womb was the maker of the moon. And to think about here as we consider Christmas and, and what it means that God would take on human flesh and come and live among us, the incarnation literally being human and how amazing it is. I don't know about you, but uh, this time of the year and a few other times throughout the year are great opportunities that remind to me to frame my life in God. It's an opportunity to remind myself and to celebrate that God is the one guiding my life and that I am to trust Him and that He will ultimately lead me home. The thing that I love about God's story is that it is a clear story of beginnings that's leading to a definitive end. God's story is a story of love and loss, of sadness and disappointment and hope and joy. It is the story after these four decades of my living that makes the most sense to me out of this disorganized and chaotic life. And it helps me understand where my place is among people like you and in the history of the world. It fills the world to me with meaning. And it fills my life with meaning too. But here's the problem is that in... Our present world, we can grow disenchanted with life generally and with spiritual life specifically. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher and he writes in his book, A Secular Age. He uses this term disenchantment and how the secular world in which we live, we don't, we don't choose it. It's the air and oxygen that we breathe. It is the ideas that are passed on, the stories that are shared And the idea of being disenchanted in the world is that the world becomes drained of the supernatural. The material world is what we see, is what we get, and it's the only thing we can trust in. And so we are shamed into, at times, not being silly in thinking about that which is not material. We are taught to think that the grown-up way of living is to disregard the spiritual and we suffer because of it. God, for many of us, can become superfluous instead of central to life. Instead of being at awe that the universe is filled with the presence of God and God wants to fill your life too. Instead of that, we come and we we look at our world in a sense of emptiness and aimlessness. And we suffer because of it. And if we're not careful, God becomes a mere sentiment for us. Christmas becomes mere sentimentality for us. And don't get me wrong, I love the sweet sentiments of Christmas. But if we're not careful, and if we we choose to live in a disenchanted approach toward life, is that instead of All we focus on is the sweet sentiment of Christmas and we miss the searing seriousness of what God has done in coming into the world. And we suffer if we miss that point. 
You know, in the days leading up to that first Christmas story, the first moment when uh, the Christmas story unfolds, there had been a long time of waiting and longing and hoping and waiting and longing and hoping and waiting and longing and hoping for 2,000 years People had been waiting for God to fulfill the promise that He had made to Abraham so long ago. Was God still? Had He forgotten about the promise? That He was going to send a rescuer into the world that would begin to set things right, that would step into a broken humanity, into a world full of war and pain and discord and chaos, and He would begin to show a different way of life? Had God forgotten that promise? Because it hadn't been fulfilled for 2,000 years. I don't know about you, but uh, most of us struggle to keep a New Year's resolution for two months. Or even two weeks. Have you ever struggled with that? Could God, anybody, possibly keep a promise that was made 2,000 years ago? And the people waited. And they wondered. And they long for it to be fulfilled. And then you add to that for 400 years before the angel shows up and begins making announcements and uh, preparing the people for what God was about to do. For 400 more years, there had been silence from heaven. At the end of the Old Testament, God had chosen not to speak through a prophet. And so that longing and that wondering increased. And they waited with wonder. Had God forgotten? Was He really involved in the world? Was He really interested in a people's life like this? Was He really interested in your life and my life? I mean, what's going on? And they waited. And they wondered. And they longed. And they hoped. And they prayed. And the angels began to come. If God could manage fulfilling His promise after 2,000 years, and He did then certainly God can manage to be present in our lives and we wait and we long. Today we're going to sit for a few moments under a tree together. Not, not a Christmas tree. A lot of good things come under Christmas trees. But today we're going to sit under a different kind of tree. It's a family tree. And we're going to look together in Matthew chapter 1. You're welcome to open there. And we're going to look Briefly, at the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus. And what is it that we learn from there? Because the Christmas story doesn't begin in a stable. It doesn't begin with a manger. It began far uh, longer uh, ago than that. And there were many, many opportunities along the way for the story of God from the moment the promise was made to the time Jesus came into the world. There were many opportunities for that story to get all messed up and for it to go awry, and for sidetracks to happen. But God was patient, and God continued to work His plan. Now, as we would read through, we don't have time this morning to read through every list. In fact, often, I want to leave that to you, and I really want to encourage you this week to go back and to read through these names. Stumble over them. Some of them are kind of hard to pronounce. It's okay. Often what we do is we kind of skip over this part to get to the good stuff. And uh, I want to encourage you this week to, to not do that, but to settle in. And, and we're going to just highlight a couple of the names. Some of them are very familiar to us. Uh, some won't be. But here's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And he goes on to list other names who are important. But in verse 6, he comes to Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then more names who are important are listed grandfathers, great-grandfathers, grandsons and great-grandsons, all the way down to verse 11 and 12, where the exile, the Israelites, out of disobedience had been expelled and scattered to the winds. But after the exile in Babylon, verse 12 says, God continues, and He wasn't done with His people, and He continued to work with them, and He drew them back together, and more important names are listed there. But we find ourselves then in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, Messiah, Anointed One. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. If we were to start in verse 17 and work our way backward, we would see the high, the high points are the coming of Jesus, work our way back to the exile to Babylon, work our way back to King David, and then back to Abraham. Those, those are the, the high points, the names that are recognizable to us. And when we hear the name Abraham, of course, our minds, if we, if we are familiar in, in a small way with the Bible, we know that Abraham represents the covenant, a promise that God made. God took Abraham out to the ocean and He said, Abraham, collect up all the little grains of sand and count them up and tell me what you come up with. Have you ever done that with like an M&M jar? Tried to guess how many M&Ms are in it? Isn't it, isn't it fun? I mean, you think there's 300 and there ends up being like 3,000 or something. Abraham says, <laughs> I can't count these grains of sand. God says, it doesn't matter. Because this is the way your descendants, even in your old age, your past childbearing age, Abraham, I'm going to work with you and through you, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as these sea, um, these shore sands are. Look up to the night sky. Count the stars. Again, he kind of shrugs and says, there's no way. And God says, that doesn't matter. The point is that even in your old age, I'm going to do something amazing through you for my glory, God says, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. But through you, there is going to come one, Abram. One is going to come through your descendants who will be my ultimate rescuer, helper, savior. He will be your friend. He's the one who's going to show you the way, my way, and that is Jesus. When we hear the name David, we know that David wrote some of the Psalms, many of them. We know that David is the quintessential uh, embodiment of a righteous king. When we think about David, we, we don't think of a king who, uh, he's not described as one who, whose heart was after gold. He's not described as one whose heart was after conquest and, and expanding a territory. We, we don't encounter David being one who's described as a king who, whose heart was after power and influence. The way the Bible describes David is that he had a heart that was after God. And I don't know about you, but my hope, my hope is that at least one person after I'm dead and gone might reflect on my life and say, for all of Bryce's faults, and there were many, he had a passionate love for God. And he had a heart 
that pursued and hungered God. And God was gracious to him. I hope at least one person might say that about me. David, the embodiment of a righteous king. Jesus is described when he is given the name or the description and the title Christ. That means Messiah, the anointed one of God. A king in the Old Testament would have been anointed and prepared for service. Jesus is being described here as one who is greater than the greatest king of Israel. And for a Hebrew mind of the day, they would have said, wow, if somebody is greater than King David, then he must be the king of kings. The king of kings. When the wise men show up in Jerusalem, you remember what they go to King Herod? They say, Herod, we've seen this amazing astronomical event, and it's drawn us here, and we have come. Will you show us? Will you point the way? To the one who has been born king of the Jews? One of the questions Pilate asks Jesus at the end of his earthly life. He says, are you the king of the Jews? When Jesus is nailed to a cross, the sign above his head read, king of the Jews. Jesus supersedes King David. He is not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. But here's what's so remarkable about the king of kings. Is that you would think that a king would would roam and stomp the halls of uh, palaces and golden-laden fortresses and sit upon thrones that are ornately decorated. The baby that was in the womb of Mary, who was the, the creator of the moon, the king of kings, when he comes into the world, he doesn't do that. He finds his way... And his bed is something more than just common. It's something beneath him. It's something beneath Jesus. He he has as a bed a feeding trough of animals. A manger is not a cute little description for us. Some wood that's been hammered and tacked together with some neat little straw in it. It was a feeding trough, a place where animals had come and slobbered on had blown their nose in. It was gross. And that's just the point. Jesus, the King of kings, comes into the earth, not into a palace or the great city, but He finds His bed, a feeding trough of animals in a cave where animals were kept. And the first people who come, the first people who are invited To see the baby Jesus are shepherds, low-born shepherds, insignificant shepherds. People who are not invited to the parties. People who are not welcomed in the, the polite social circles of the day. Shepherds would not have made your invitation list just the way it was. Here they are out keeping their sheep out in the fields. And they're invited to the party, the very first. And it's so purposeful. You know, the timing and the details of the Christmas story are not by accident. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The timing was not an accident. The details of it were no accident. It is to remind you and me to know that the King of Kings, the Maker of the Moon, 
has stepped into the world and He's accessible to ordinary folk like you and me. Isn't that good news? Can I hear something? I hope you think that's good news. The King of Kings has come out of love for you. We did something last night in San Quentin and I want to do it with you. Some of you are going to hate this. And I'm sorry. But I had the men last night turn to a near neighbor, one right beside them, and to say these words, God loves you. Now, I know some of you are shy and you don't want to do it. That's okay. But you can just turn to a neighbor and you can just give them the look that tells them that God loves them. Here's the look. Okay, here's the look. You kind of go... All right. All right, go ahead. God loves you or give them the look. Now turn to another neighbor and do the same thing. Give them the look or tell them God loves them. That's right. Is it easy to say? It kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Those words are easy in our mouths to say. Whether we believe them or not, we can say them. You know what's a little harder is for the ears to engage in the words and to really hear and to really receive and to really let the words go into our ears and sink into our hearts into the heart of heart, and to really know that you are loved by God. You are loved by God. In spite of your imperfections, you're loved by God. Isn't that good? David, King David, in spite of his imperfections, he was loved by God. In spite of his adultery, in spite of his um, second-degree murder, he was loved by God. Rahab, who was a harlot, who harbored the the scouts of the Israelites, she was loved by God. The one who remains unnamed, only known as Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she was loved by God. Ruth, who was an outsider, outside of the people of Israel, she was brought near and in, and she was loved by God. You, my friends, are loved by the King of Kings. I think every year it seems, and it's not on purpose, it just kind of wells up in me that one of my favorite songs in recent years is Good King Wenceslas, and so you get to hear this again today. But what I love about the song, you you may not even recognize the name of the song, but you probably know the tune because you hear it in the elevator. (laughs) It's dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You guys are good. Steve is looking for new choir members. Good King Wenceslas, here's the story if you're not familiar. You maybe know the tune, but maybe you don't know the story. It's a great picture of the King of Kings coming into the world. Here's the story. It's kind of set in the medieval day. And this king is uh, he has having a feast and he's invited the whole kingdom to the castle. And they're inside, snug and warm. The fires are large and raging. The food is plentiful and keeps coming. The song and merriment is happening everywhere. The sounds, the smells, the sights. It's the place to be. And the king walks by a window and he looks out. And out in the darkness, under the moonlight, in the snow, he sees a man out collecting firewood. Not part of the party. He turns to his page boy and he says, Page, do you know who that is? And he says, yes, that's so-and-so. He lives in a house down at the foot of the mountain. And he says, well, the king says he's not at the party. We're going to take the party to him. 
So he gets the page boy and they get all bundled up and they get some firewood and, and they take some food and supplies and they go out on a hunt to find this man. And it is so great. And as, as they go, the, the winter storm gets heavier. The night sky grows darker. The snow falls harder. It's piling up taller. The air is getting colder. And the page boy is ready to give up. He's exhausted. He's smaller and younger than the king. And he says, King, I'm just sitting down. I'm done. He says, You go on. King says, No, no. He says, Here's what we're going to do. He says, I'm going to step. Have you, ever, have you ever walked in the snow? I know kids who grow up here don't really know what snow is unless you drive to Tahoe. But... When you walk in really deep snow, it can be really hard. I remember one time skiing, my very first time, I was told, don't ever take your snow skis off. I thought, well, that's silly. <laughs> so I crashed outside the, the pathway, and I was, you know, in a, I don't know, six-foot drift and could hardly see above it. I said, well, these skis are bugging me, so I take them off, and I was in real trouble because then I really sank down in the snow. Here's what... Good King Wenceslas did. He says, Page boy, I wish I knew his name. He says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to trudge ahead, and I'm going to make footprints in this deep, heavy snow, and you are to put every footstep of yours in the footprint that I've already made. And if you walk in my footsteps, you and I will both make it where we need to go. And that's exactly what the page boy does. Exhausted. They wind up at the man's house. They knock on the door. He lets them in. The man who couldn't make it to the castle to be part of the party, the feast now is brought not by a messenger, but by the king himself. He brings the feast to the man so that the man can enjoy the warmth and the presence and the goodness and the bounty of the king himself. And there they are. And that is just what the king of kings has done at Christmas. He has stepped out of his castle and he's packaged up the feast and he's brought the feast to us who need it so desperately so that you and I might enjoy the presence of the King, so that we might enjoy the bounty of the King, so that we might enjoy the goodness of being with Him. We've sung about it today, Emmanuel, God with us. The King of Kings has come because He loves you. So, that's part of the reason that we set aside time every year to prepare ourselves for the day of Christmas. To be reminded that Christmas is more than decorations and trees and and gifts and shopping and making lists and hoping for certain presents to be given. That ultimately, of course, Christmas is about the King of Kings leaving the castle and bringing the feast to us. My hope over these next few weeks together is that we would in some way cap- be captured by wonder at Christmas again. Because so often year after year, season after season, Christmas, some of the it could just sort of get muted, the real message of Christmas gets muted and distorted and forgotten and we don't revel in it. We don't wonder as much about what God has done? What does it mean that God would put on flesh and make His dwelling among us? I want and I hope that you will wonder and be in awe at what God has done and why He's done it because He loves you. So every year, we set aside special times of the year to 
to remember what God has done. Because there's no better way for us to throw away a disenchanted approach to life and to our spiritual lives and to re-engage every year to be reminded that, that the secular story is not the true story. That we step into the story of God because it is true. It is a story of love. It's a story of God recovering the loss that we've created so that we can enjoy His presence and His bounty and His goodness. He has come to bring the feast to you. So every year, we try to capture time and we lay out time in a particular way so that God might work in it to shape our minds and our hearts to remind us of what story really shapes your life. So we do that every year at Christmas. And then God invites you to weekly rhythms as well. To be centered in and swimming in the real story, not the counterfeit one out there in the secular world, but the real story of where you belong and to whom you belong and why you were loved and how deeply that love goes that God would come, step out of the castle of heaven and walk among us to bring the feast to us. I hope that you and I together will be captured by wonder at what God has done and continues to do. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We thank you and we celebrate that you you have come to us because of your love for us. Emmanuel, God with us, you've come to hold us. You've come to show us the way. You come every year to help remind us that, um, that this is the story that really shapes our life and plots our living squarely in You, in a world and a life that makes sense. It doesn't always answer every question that we have, but it makes the most sense, at least to me, out of all of the alternatives. And so God... We want to be captured by You. And when we are captured by You, our hearts cannot escape being captured by wonder. And I pray that You would help us this day and this month not just anticipate, again, rehearsing the coming of Jesus on Christmas Day, but we might be reminded that You have made a promise 2,000 years ago, and we've been waiting 2,000 more years for You to come again And just like you've kept your other promises, we trust that you will keep this one too. And so we desire to live lives where we are prepared and ready should your trumpet blow even this afternoon and the skies be torn open and you come back again, that our hearts are ready for your return. God, thank you. Help us to eagerly wait and long even for that day because you will come again to make your final restoration of your original creation. And we thank you in advance for it now. In Jesus' name, we ask it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing our final song together. And as we always try to make space to, we want to invite you, if maybe hearing about the love of God has not until this day really resonated with you, 
and you're curious to learn more about what that means and how you might open your life to the love of God, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love to begin a conversation with you as we sing right in the middle of the song. You're welcome to come down and, um, and we'll have a good chat. That'll be great. Won't you stand, find your music sheet, and we're going to sing together.